questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. And tonight we discuss the joys of psychopathocracy, why criminality is essential to effective modern government. This is government. There are many things you can do with government. You can use it to rally people to a cause. You can use it to tell people how much you care about social justice, civil rights, law and order, the environment, world peace, racism, or democracy. There's a thousand uses you can find for government. Yet there is only one function for which it is best suited and for which its designers use it 99% of the time to mask, nurture, cultivate, and actuate criminal conspiracies. In other words, you use it to create the appearance of goodness, when in fact it acts as a cover for the most evil and hideous human activities imaginable. The reason that this is the government's best function is because that is the purpose for which it was created. Any other function is artificial and not in keeping with government's original design or its essential nature. Greetings, I'm your host, Mal Fabregas. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, past, present, and future, subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Tonight's special guest is food technologist, herbalist, author, Greg Caton. In 1995, Greg created Alpha Omega Labs, which became a provider of over 300 alternative health products with 14 distributors around the world before its closure by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in September 2003. It successfully reopened in Ecuador in June 2008. Alpha Omega Labs is best known for Cansema, an effective cure for skin cancer based on suppressed formulary information dating back to the 1850s. Over a 13-year period, Alpha Omega Labs was responsible for curing thousands of cancer cases. Greg was imprisoned for years, released and later extraordinarily renditioned and imprisoned again. He has written a new book titled The Joys of Psychopathocracy, Why Criminality is Essential to Effective Modern Government, which would be the focus of tonight's interview. And to learn more about Great Caton and his work, visit his websites, greatcaton.com and herbhealers.com. And directly from Ecuador, even though he has been with Neon Sanitas twice, for the first time on Veritas, I would like to welcome Greg Caton. Hello, Greg, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Thank you for having me, Mel. Always a pleasure. And for those people who may not know who you are, I highly suggest, folks, that you go back to our archive on Sanitas. We did two, two incredible interviews there. It shows the exact story. I don't want to be sounding too repetitive tonight because we have so much territory to cover. This is almost like a manifesto. You may call it a swan song. But first of all, let me ask you this. With what you went through, Greg, writing this book, and after I read it, I thought, are you poking the hornet's nest? You know, I think you have to speak your own truth at some point. You know, I, I, I'm sure that you frequently heard the same by George Orwell, or George Orwell, that in times of extraordinary uh, times of universal deceit, speaking the truth becomes a universal act. But, but that's yeah. where we're at. I mean, we there, there is no chance for us. And in book two of uh, of the joys of psychopathocracy, I talk about I, I talk about an interview that I had. In fact, it was so it got so personal that I actually declined as an afterthought. I declined to post it on YouTube, even though that was on my original thought. But basically. It, we're in a very precarious times. We are in the middle of the Holocene extinction event. And according to Guy McPherson prescribes to this idea called near-term human extinction. He says we've got 10 years, but doesn't matter. 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, it doesn't matter. We are, um, we are in the process of signing our own death certificates. And if we're not, if we reached, if we've reached a point where we can't speak to each other truthfully about these things, because we may upset somebody in government, then there's no hope for us anyways. There has to be some – I think the most hallowed, hallowed principle among all civil rights is the ability to speak freely. Um, it's been often there's – there's a paraphrase of Volt of the French philosopher Voltaire, this kind of a summation of a lot of the principles that were behind the founding of the U.S. in the first place. And this expression is, 
I may not believe a word you say, but I'll fight to the death your right to say it. If we've lost that, if that no longer exists, if we have to worry about there being a target on our back because we speak our truth, then there's no hope for us anyways. So, you know, um, I understand that this book is going to upset uh, a certain number of people, particularly those who who have their pig snout deep inside the trough of the um, uh, government's uh, largesse, but I can't worry about that. I have to speak my own truth and let the chips fall where they may. And I, I prescribe to this as an actual philosophy. People should learn to speak their own truth because that's part of what's wrong right now. We've gotten to this this mode of political correctness where people are it, it, it deprives people of their own honesty. When people cannot even be honest with themselves because they're afraid of what their peers may think, we, we've gone in the wrong direction. We have to speak freely or, or there's no hope for us. I like the, I like Voltaire, but I also like the, one of his best quotes, to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticize. And this me, the, the mere fact that you and I are talking today, the book and what we're going to be discussing today, will just tell everybody in case they don't know. But you know, Greg, we once had, if we ever did a government off by and for the people. The government feared its citizens, not the other way around. What changed and when did it change? Well, I think it's, I don't see it as a linear progression. I see it as something that has kind of gone back and forth throughout the centuries. But my point in doing this book is that, and I'm trying to find a way to express it in the simplest terms, is that we have all of these structures that exist in our life. We have our families. We have our relatives. We have our business associates. We have local government. We have national government. We have global NGOs. We have all that. We're surrounded by all these structures. But they exist within the mind in a very disorganized way because we don't know how to relate to them in a way as to how what is our true relationship with them and what I've done, which I think is extremely novel. It's another reason I wrote this book. I think I, I, if anybody else had ever written a book, anything like this, then I would have just said, go over there and buy that guy's book. It's a great book. Um, what I've done is I've taken a form of, of, of structured social analysis where all of these different entities that exist in our lives get put into this uh, a, a mental structure where you're able to have what I call sectoral distance. You're able to see what is my relationship between these entities, and um, you're able to realize that, at least in the case of government, that ultimately it is not possible ever in any country, in any language, in any time to have good government. It isn't possible. It isn't structurally possible. And for people who haven't read my book, I know that there's people who are going to say, you know what are you talking about? That's outrageous. But you have you have to you have to read what I what, what I have created because it's very logical, very structured, and it, it all makes sense. There there is this this idea that we have this very hierarchical social structure with bureaucracies that lord over us. That somehow that you can arrange that into some form, whether the overreigning philosophy is capitalism or socialism or communism or whatever whatever ism that you want to create that somehow you can rearrange the deck chairs and you'll get some better form of it there are some governments which are better than others there is no government which exists in a way that relative to you as the individual is does not exhibit and this is a very important principle exists throughout the entirety of my book Negative reciprocity. I shortened it to, to negaprocity. Now, most people, most members of your audience, they know what reciprocity is. They know what it is to have a relationship with someone where I do things for them. They do things for me. I'm happy with them. I like them. They're happy with me. They like me. They understand this basic concept of, reci of reciprocity. And I draw my, my work from – um, it's an extension of the work of an American anthropologist by the name of Marshall Solon. What he did is he studied uh, uh, indigenous groups and identified the various types of relationships that people can have. The relationship you have with your mother, your family, your tribe, intertribal relationships, tribes within your, your area. And 
the various types of reciprocity that exist, you know, uh, unconditional reciprocity, structured reciprocity, uh, you know, the, the various types of w- uh, weak, weak reciprocity. But he never goes outside this outer circle. And this is what caught my attention. He never – because outside that circle, he says, when you step outside the circle, you now have a form – of course, we, know, we all experience this all the time – a form of human relationship that he called negative reciprocity. I'm dealing with you, Mel, and instead of saying, how can I make Mel happy? How can I work with Mel in a way where I benefit and he benefits and we're both happy? Instead, my thought process is, how can I exploit Mel? How can I have it so that at the end of the transaction, I benefit and I'm the winner and he's the loser? And the point that I try to make is out on the far fringes, and I actually categorize, I categorize all these different forms of negative reciprocity so that the person can actually create a structure. Basically, my book reprograms your brain. That's what it does. It's designed to reprogram you so that you're able to put in perspective the various types of human relationships. And it's, it's a very easy thing to do so that you see, you know, what what the ultimate possibilities are within the nature of that relationship. As it relates to government, government is by its very nature negaprocitous. It's an adjective that I use, meaning that it's it lends itself to negative reciprocity. It's exploitative. Government can never give to the people more than it takes from the people. It is by its very nature structured. When, when you take my form of social analysis, it is parasitic it can never be anything other than parasitic and then i extend that even further saying what is relationships government to the natural order to mother nature to the earth to the life systems that ensure that we will exist our children will exist and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have a living breathing world and the conclusion i came to is that with the progression of government becoming more and more invasive in our lives to the point where the government is more and because of technology government is more invasive now than another than at any other time the holocene extinction event the event we are in now an event that is more serious than the permian extinction of 252 million years ago if you had to point your finger and find fault or find the source of this holocene extinction event my point is Follow my logic, and you will see that you will find that the ultimate culprit is government. And I think that's an important realization, at least if we're going to be go to a point where, to follow up on this work of Professor Emeritus of the University of Arizona, Guy McPherson, that we really are in near-term human extinction. I think people have the right to know what is the source of their demise. I think it's an important topic of conversation. Absolutely. And I'm going to find to see if I can conduct an interview with Professor McPherson. He's not too far away from me here in Tucson. Now, Greg, you already... Oh, exper- actually, I, I actually should... Go ahead. Actually, he's currently living in Belize. He lived for Arizona. Oh, for quite so he's a while. retired? He, well, I, I think... Um, <laughs> I don't even know if this is a word. I think in his state of fed-upness, I think he just, you know... Relocated, relocated to the Cayo district of uh, <laughs> Western Belize, and just said, "I'm I, this. I've had enough. I'm out of here." Well, but he's he's. Um, I interviewed him for an hour, and I had a host of questions for him. And you know, people may not agree with him, but but uh, you know, pe- people want to focus on these small issues. They want to focus on how many parts per billion of CO2 are in the air, or how much methane, or any of the, these other forms of chemical analysis. When we can see. What's going on before our eyes? What is the number one cause of the extinction of any species? Well, you learn that from any evolutionary biologist. He'll tell you. The cause of the demise of a species is habitat collapse. And what we're seeing right now in in Africa, in the Middle East, and these expanding dead zones that are caused by Fukushima, slowly but surely we are seeing uh, habitat collapse uh, all over the world. And this is how it starts. This is how this, the extinction of a species starts. And when you realize that, when you realize that the extinction of the species is primarily through habitat collapse, then all of this, all of these, all this polemic regarding this particular greenhouse gas or that particular greenhouse gas, it becomes immaterial. 
because the end result, something that's far closer to our being able to measure what's actually going on, is the state of the health uh, of the environment and uh, whether or not our, our, the area that humans can live and th- survive on is growing or shrinking. In our case, it's shrinking. Let me ask you this. It just occurred to me right now. I didn't have this in my notes. But since you mentioned Fukushima, you know, many people blame these massive hurricanes we're seeing lately to global warming. But could it be that what's causing the warming of the oceans is actually something, I mean, some people say is solar maximum times, you know, we have El Nino, but could Fukushima have a place to be blamed about this? I don't know the degree to which there's a causal connection. I think there's a number of people who make very compelling arguments that this is all because of uh, weather modification, weather engineering. The, the, certainly, we've got the evidence in the U.S. Patent Office to show that, that this is what uh, has been going on. Uh, I have friends in California who actually witnessed you know, these fireballs coming down that were precursors to all these fires going on in Northern California. I mean – Again, I, I get into this very deeply in the book. When you get to the far ends of negaprosity, what this actually leads to, and what it leads to, is the gravitation of people with highly um, psychopathological conditions gravitating toward government, because like attracts like. And there is a certain personality type. I, I get into this deep in the book. There's a certain personality type that gets a certain psychic joy or psychic thrill out of creating misery for others. Um, Misery for others, misery for the environment, disregard for the life and respect of animals and other life forms. And you find find a, a higher than normal percentage of people in government who have these kinds of psychopathic characteristics. And it manifests in how they think, and it manifests in their behavior. And um, Getting back to your original question as, as it relates to what's going on with, with the hurricanes, with the weather modification, I mean, there, there, there's certain people who actually, you know, they, they there's a thrill for them. There's a thrill for them in seeing all these people displaced and all these, uh, you know, the, the so many people who died that's still gone unreported and what happened in the Houston area. You know, I got a phone call. <clears throat> I got a phone call uh, about two weeks after the hurricane hit. He said, "You know, do you do you realize?" He says, "I do you realize that there were super super sites, you know, super clean sites that were established by the EPA that are near uh, Houston, and because the, the flooding was so bad, those those chemicals have scattered all over the Houston area. In a matter of speaking, already, even though we may not see it manifest immediately, just like Fukushima happened in March of 2011, but it took two or three pe- years for people to really see." the deep impact of what Fukushima was doing in the same fashion. It's going to take years to see what this hurricane, what, what was it? Harvey? I can't remember now. Uh, Which one? Did, yeah. The one that hit Houston and Harvey. the Harvey. And my point is that uh, my friend said that he has associates that are very familiar with these super sites. He said, for all intents and purposes, Houston is already uninhabitable. Oh, sure, you're going to have people live there. There's going to be people going to their apartments, trying to get back, trying to live their lives. But it's so toxic now that in terms of living a a, a life as a homo sapien in a reasonably healthy environment, that whole entire area, which just happens to be my wife's birthplace, it's uninhabitable. It'll just take a Because of the chemicals they dropped? Because of the the, – there's just unbelievably nasty, toxic chemicals that leaked out of these super sites that are – that got washed into the into the water and is now basically all, all over Houston. <laughs> so it's going to take time. People are not going to see this right away. It's, it's going to take – but basically this is only one event of many. This contributed to the um, demise of our, um, of our environment. But hold it because in Puerto Rico – they were giving people water because at one point there was no water. They were giving people water from super sites. And then they were saying, well, we, we, there's some chemicals, but I think they'll be fine. But about these fires, I have to ask you, I saw this morning from where it was, LA Times. Why is the Army Corps of Engineers going to dismantle foundations of Santa Rosa's homes burned out. And some people, a lot of people have been emailing me because they know that I've interviewed Dr. Judy Wood in the past. And they're saying, look, it's just direct 
protected energy weapons. And I went to Dr. Wood and I said, hey, what do you think about this? And of course, she objects to what people are saying. If I might, let me just read this from her. And she says, the rant about California fires is an example of the dumbing down of our culture. Did the wood frame houses dustify with all the dust going upwards? Was there a lack of high heat? It truly is an example of how conspiracy theories operate. They start with a theory, assuming a conspiracy, and omit all evidence except for one detail, frame out of context. Then they make the circuit on alternative media and whip all the gullible into a frenzy. That's how the Sandy Hook ranters operated too. I disagree with her there. Now, following that stuff scrambles most people's ability to recognize reality, even when it's right in front of them. Soon they won't be able to solve any problem at all. Your take on that? Well, it's pretty empirical. If I look... If I look up in the sky and I see this event that's not normal, I see a fireball coming. That's not it's not a natural phenomenon. Um, you know, I understand her point, and it's probably it probably is true that it's easy for certain people to extrapolate certain things because more and more people are realizing that you know that I, I saw a survey recently that said that less people than ever believe in government because it's just it keeps. Uh, Maybe it's because of a rise of consciousness. Maybe it's because it's more it's being more difficult for them to play games and not reveal their true colors. So I understand her point. I don't think it's relevant here. I, you know, the, these the the these fires have a lot of characteristics that are are not natural. But um, the trees are still standing. It's it doesn't make any sense. And uh, you know. Her comment kind of reminds me, you know, I'll give you another example. I have, I have a great deal of respect for Noam Chomsky, and I, I'm kind of um, grateful. He wrote a letter to the president of Ecuador after I got, you know, basically condemning it to, to Rafael Correa, who is the president of, of Ecuador at that time. Uh, and, and I like his work. He, his writing style is a little dry for me personally, but, but I like him and I appreciate him. And I probably own 10 of his books and have read every one of them. But Every now and again, someone says something that makes you go, what? Even though you respect them for all their other work, they make you go, what? Noam Chomsky was asked, do you think that 9-11 yep. was a conspiracy? And basically, he says, you could never, you could never uh, get people together and, and, do, and, and pull off something like that. In other words, what Noam Chomsky was doing is saying, look at – uh, this is my this is the official storyline, and I'm sticking to it. And you know, pardon me for saying so, but I think that's a little bit intellectually dishonest because or the or gatekeeperish. I saw that years ago. Yes, I know that quote very, yeah. very well. Right. So it's like it's you know it's outrageous, and I think and and this is true of people who reach a certain level of um, standing, if you will, within either the intellectual community or the political arena. Or the you know basically it's like listen, buddy. Uh, you're up here. Uh, you're living with us up here on the mountain uh, on Mount Olympus. So you better toe the party line if you know what's good for you. And I got up here this repeatedly yep. from people that I know. You know, so um, I'm sorry to hear that because I um, what is her first name again? Uh, Doctor Wood. Doctor um, Judy Wood. Yeah, forgive me for get, forgetting the word Judy, but yeah, Judy. You know, I, I've I haven't read her book. I've read extrapolations from it, and I have a great deal of respect for. Her. But when I hear something like that, it's like, ooh, because there's just so much evidence. This is this is whatever is behind these fires in Northern California. There's a, certainly a lot of even if it's uh, circumstantial or it's it's certainly empirical. It's pe certainly from people's observations. It does not appear to be natural, and I think to make that to point that out. I don't think that makes you a conspiracy theorist. I go into whole conspiracy theory thing basically deep in, in my book because uh, in connection with something I call the benign common narrative. Again, people – you'd have to read the book to, to understand what I'm talking about. But um, more times than not, that label, if you will, conspiracy theory, it's, it's used – as a defense mechanism to cover something that the government is doing that, that is just horrific. That, that, that were, there were people who, who point out, well, I see this and this and this, and these are the dots that I'm connecting, and this is really evil, and this is obviously what they're up to. And when you make these observations, again, when you, when you step out and you say, no, the sky, the sun rises from the east and sets in the west, when the government says, well, because you said that you're conspiracy theorists, you've got to be able to have the cojones to say, no, 
No, I could use my eyes. I trust my senses. I trust my senses more than I do you. No, the sun rises from the east and sets on the west. Say what you will. If people can't get to that point, then they're not, they are nothing but sheep. And this is what government attempts to do. Government attempts to say, listen, the truth is what we say it is. You cannot listen to you. You cannot trust what you see. You cannot trust what you hear. You cannot trust what you smell. You cannot trust your five senses. We are officialdom. We're going to tell you what you believe, and we're going to establish the truth. When you get to that point, then people really are nothing but sheep. I think this has been happening. You know, true journalism is over. If you went out there to create news, as we used to see when we were children, you know, the six o'clock news, that's over. After 9-11, all you have to do, you know this, you turn, you switch channels and they're basically repeating the same script. And the script is being provided by, I believe, someone from the government. There's a liaison. It's just simply a propaganda machine. Some more than others, echo chambers from political, the two political party wings. But I think that's what's, that's what it is today. Well, yes, and I make this point. Uh, there's a part of my book, it's chapter four, actually, where I, I say that part of the function of government, you, you cannot say that you are a person of power. You cannot say that you are from an organization that has power unless you come to the conclusion that in the game of chess, the hand that moves the white pieces and the hand that moves the black pieces must be the same hand. In order to exercise power, you must constantly be testing the gullibility of the people. So that's why, they're do, that's why they do all these false flags. It's very important to see just what can you, – you don't know what you can get away with unless you test people's stupidity and measure their gullibility. And I, I, give, I give historic examples uh, in my book, uh, and it, it's important that people realize that the media – one of the functions of the media is to test – well, we don't know what you, you we we really don't know what we can get away with, unless we see just how stupid the, are just how stupid are the people, and then they do these 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 you know they come up with these rid ridiculous false flag events. They use all these crisis actors, which keep reappearing in one event after another. Um, <laughs> it's you know so uh, that's how we put conspiracy theorists a theory and in, into a proper context is realizes that one of the functions of government is to test our stupidity and the only way that you can push back is to say can i tr can i trust my own mind can i trust my own senses or am i going to just let government gaslight me to death with one ridiculous premise after another that i'm supposed to actually believe you know th this is this is what where people have to go and because of the fact that people have because of just a, how, what horrific levels the educational system has descended to, people have lost their ability to think critically. Um, we have the we we have the uh, we have a big problem because the, the 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 mass of people don't think on their own, so they're not able to see through these things, and you know they they believe that what they see on TV is true because uh, under the premise that if you repeat a lie often enough, frequently enough, with enough passion that all of a sudden you can make the most ridiculous false statement carry an area of truthfulness. Well, that just isn't the case. Really, I mean, in a way, this latest work is, is an exhortation for people to start being so – stop being so stupid and start thinking for themselves because, you know, it's obvious to me from the things I read in the media and the, and the polls that I read that, that people do not think. And, and people have this fear of, of thinking independently and they're fearful to think of they're, – they're, they're fearful to come to conclusions that somehow take them to a place where they're not critically correct. And that is just so wrong. And I've recently posted this quote on Facebook. I said that great minds don't think like they think for themselves, but it's, you know, it's a hard thought to process for a lot of people. In the book, you discuss the premise on the role of government in education. I'll leave that for later, but since we're talking about the education and the link between government and the media, I think it's more indoctrination than education, because if it was truly education, most people will be much more awake today, you know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it takes ridicule, shunning, loneliness, isolation, and much more in this day and age in order to jump outside the box to really have a better perspective of what's really going on, you know, going on around us. And I know those listening to us know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, I know many listen to this show in private 
and don't want anyone else to know. Some, not everyone. But that's where we are, Greg. Yeah, it, it, and it's, um, it's what's taken us to the place that we're at now, which is where um, the psychopaths are in charge. Uh, and they, they hit gravitate to the far end of what I call extreme negaprosity. They're in charge. And they have created a system where human mental capability has been so greatly diminished that they're able to get away with more now than they've ever gotten away with before. And that's why we have such a starry state of the world. I, I know that you have, um, you have interviewed uh, Derek Jensen in the past. Yes. And, you know, he, some, you know, he does a very good job. I, I really like his work. Uh, he's done a great job of just catalog, uh, cataloging the, worldwide ecological destruction and it, it, it's not a linear process one of the things guy mcpherson emphasizes is this that people are not able to understand the difference between uh, linear progression and exponential progression right now we are beginning to get go into this kind of exponential curve of planetary destruction and it it, it, it you know we have it within our power well, i shouldn't say we that's the word. the people the powers that be have it within their within their ability, within their power, to make this planet no more life-bearing than Pluto. And that is where we're headed. And you, when you talk to the average person who doesn't stay up with ecological issues, they think that you're nuts. They think – they look at you like you've got three heads. They think that's an exaggeration. It's not. This is the direction to which we're headed. It's far extreme, more extreme than extinction levels of the past, which were natural, which were caused naturally, because the extinction event that we're currently in, the primary contributor to it has been human activity. And uh, the last half of the, I shouldn't say the last half, it's not even half, it's I think the last, whatever it is, 60 pages, devotes itself to, you know, what is the chance for a turnaround in this? What what are the possible events that could happen that could turn this around? Because right now, um, if there was no change of course, it, it looks very dismal. And we're not talking about two or three or five hundred years from now. You know, we're talking uh you know within our lifetimes. And that's a very sobering thought. Again, even if McPherson is wrong on his timeline, I'll tell you one thing. I, I this well, this is one thing. This is one of the reasons I didn't put it on YouTube, but I'll reveal it to your audience. <sighs> Guy gets the, McPherson gets this phone call from somebody who said, "There's somebody that wants to meet you. He is one of the elite. This guy is <laughs> the word he used was gazillionaire. He says, I'm not going to even say he's a billionaire. This guy, this guy is extremely wealthy. He's one of the top elite. He wants to meet you and talk to you in private. And um." So McPherson was kind of waiting for the phone call, and uh, he got a, a phone call a few days later, and the guy said, well, he's actually decided, no, he doesn't need to meet with you after all. But in the course of that conversation, he said that this guy readily admitted that Guy McPherson had it right, and he, that there are those members of the elite who study these things, because these people have a lot access to a lot better intelligence than you and I do, who privately feel that that we're probably looking at a human extinction as early as the 2025 to 2030 timeframe. He's deadly serious. This is not, this is not something that's made up. This is not a fairy tale. This is, this is, uh, this was actually communicated to him. And, uh, and going back to your earlier point where you said, you know, don't you think that by writing a book like this, you're kicking the snake or poking the, poking the scorpion or whatever. Um, you know, while his last few years while teaching at the University of Arizona, he had a guy that came to him later that he found out was an actual CIA agent that was actually put in his classroom to observe and take notes and everything and report back what this guy was teaching. That's the point we've got to. And then at a later time, he had another guy come to him and tell him, I just want you to know that the only reason that you're alive, imagine getting a visit like this. The only reason you're alive is because the members of the elite that want you alive in this current moment, happen to outnumber the ones who want you dead. This is the world we're in. This is how crazy it is. I no. mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine being an enemy of the state because you 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 actually document um, the widespread 
ecological destruction and you you structure it and put it together into a narrative that's explainable to people. And because you do that, somehow you're the crosshairs of those in power. I mean, to me, it's unthinkable. To me, in any society that could even remotely claim that that it had civil liberties, these developments are unthinkable to me. But they're actually happening. In a somewhat unrelated, but since we're, since we're talking about the environment, I went through many hurricanes in my life. When I lived in the Caribbean, I went through Andrew in 92, and then I was observing all these hurricanes this past few weeks, and Puerto Rico got one that erupts its north side, then Hurricane Maria came along that swallowed it. There was There's a rainforest, the only tropical rainforest in the United States territories in the, the Western Hemisphere is right there in Puerto Rico, El Yunque. It's one of my favorite places. It looks, if you've watched the movie Avatar, well, think Avatar, that's almost what you saw there. And people are sending me pictures now of what it looks now, and it's just absolutely unbelievable. But where I'm going with this, I've been looking at what's going on. They don't have any power. And I found that just like 9-11 gave us the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, and then Halliburton and a bunch of other companies, but let me just pick on Halliburton that were charging hundreds of dollars for a case of Coca-Cola or water or laundry. Then now we have this little company called Whitefish from Montana, two employees, two years of experience. It's going to take millions and millions of dollars of a no bidding contract that they just got uh, given to them to fix the, the electricity in Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico. $23 $23 an hour is what somebody from the local authority makes. Well, these people that are coming down there are going to be making almost $320 an hour. $7,000 a day versus $475 a day for the local people. Disaster capitalism at its best. And this is just one branch of what they're fixing there. So you cannot let a catastrophe or a disaster go to waste, Greg. Well, I agree with that, but but disaster capitalism really is a kind of a byproduct of something deeper. And again, I talk about this extensively. And that that deeper thing that gives that plants the seed and gives fruit to what becomes disaster capitalism is again this this psychopathic discharge that people get from knowing they have the power to completely destroy and level what's before them it's 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 evil it's pure evil it's the, it's the manifestation of pure evil and uh do they have another place to go to because they treat the planet as if they had another place to go to that question contained within your question is the hidden assumption that they're acting logically there's no logic in this derek jensen makes the same point there's no logic in this their their grandchildren and their great grandchildren are going to meet the same fate as ours. And all this I think all these ideas. Of course, you know I'm good friends with Richard Sauter. All these things that he uncovered as it relates to these underground military bases, they're insane. These people are insane. Understand that. Well, first of all, basically, if you're a psychopath, that's a form of insanity as it is. I mean, right out of DSM number five, uh, it's a form of insanity as it is. It doesn't take into account those things. Because the the nature of psychopathy is to consider the short term gains of what you do as a as a as opposed to the long term benefits that reciprocity reaps. This is one of its natural flaws. Insane people don't think of the long term consequences of what they do. They're not concerned with that. They think in very short for very short time frames. And so, you know, contained within your question is a presumed logic that on the part of these people simply doesn't exist. That's the incredible part of it. It doesn't exist They're They are on a kamikaze mission and the rest, you know, there's a plane in the sky and this plane has 8 billion people in it. And there's a handful of people up front who are in the pilot's kit. And these people are on a kamikaze mission. They're going to take us with us. They're going to kill themselves, but they're going to kill the rest of us with with them, okay. This is where we're at. We are on a we. The governments of the world, which act in greater unison than ever before, because of all of these various uh, global uh, authoritative bodies like the United Nations. Really, the governments of the world have banded together. And although many of the people that are on the top of these governments don't think of it in these terms, the fact of the matter is that they have taken us all on a kamikaze mission. And for what? For what? For the 
short-term satisfaction of a certain class of 0.1% that are completely psychopathic. They're not willing to change course. This is where we're at. I, I, and I think, you know, there's all kinds of things that we can talk about. I mean, you cover such a broad range of really important topics on both Sanitas and Veritas, and, and I love your work. But Thanks. in my mind, in my mind, in terms of our national dialogue, I can't think of anything else more that's more important to talk about than can we reverse the course of short-term human extinction? Can we reverse the course of basically turning planet Earth into a lifeless rock? Well, let's look at some of the culprits here. And by the way, so great to hear that you and Dr. Richard Souter are connected in. And I'm so glad to, to hear that uh, he's a good friend of this program. We haven't heard from or off him for many years, and I'm glad that we're probably going to be making contact soon. So hopefully, Richard, you're going to be coming over to discuss what's been happening and what you see for He spent the a lot of time in Morona, Santiago. He, he did quite a lot. Of, he's done a lot of journeys with ayahuasca, ayahuasca and, okay. uh, and gone on quite a number of journeys of um, – Malakawa and, and these other substances. He he's an amazing psychonaut. I, there's not a whole lot of people in that field that I respect. Uh, he he is leagues above someone like let us say Daniel Pinchbeck. I he, he he's really he's not really Richard. He he's eccentric, but he's an extraordinary mind. He really is an extraordinary mind and things he's experienced. And so if if he was out of touch with you, it's because he he was out of touch with he, <laughs> he was on a journey and out of touch with civilization, right. frankly. That's fine. And hopefully now that he's opened his mind's eye even more, he'll share some of his new reality. But let me ask you this so that we can get to, to not the bottom of it, but to the meat of things. I can think of two multi-billion or multi-trillion dollar industries, and I'm referring to the oil and cancer industries. I'm just picking two out of many others. Do you think these two industries have their own intelligence apparatus within, and they have the ability to subvert or destroy anything and anyone that threatens their existence with alternative energy sources and, let's say, cures? Well, I think we can actually, you know, see the evidence of that. I think, you know, I, I don't think we have to postulate. I mean, we, we can see that how many people have actually come up with really, really remarkable substitutes uh, for our oil energy paradigm or a cancer is a disease. There's, of course, over 200 different types of cancer. But you know, you, you know that I work in the in, in with with anti-cancer herbs, and we have a, you know, here at my shop, we have a rather remarkable track record in what we do. And um, you know, what do we see? We see constantly things being subverted that would lead to an alternative that will take us off the path of destruction again. And again and again, I know there. I'm, I, I have known three different people who have developed alternative energies. Who I ended up having the pleasure. Maybe I shouldn't use the word pleasure. I had the maybe honor of meeting their acquaintance, and all three of them said, "Yeah, they they took they they killed my husband. They assassinated him because he was developing this and this and this." One of them, to speaking, we were speaking earlier about Houston. One of which was in the Houston area. A fellow uh, came up with a brilliant, brilliant plan to take spent uranium from the power plants, which is that's another thing that 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 can cause our demise is all of this uh stored spent radioactive activity from the power plants and figured out how to use it in an internal combustion engine and the end result would be that that the complete denaturing of the radioactive material and uh this guy was first visited by three men in black. He said, first of all, this whole idea of men in black, I thought that was just something out of the Hollywood movies. I didn't even think such people actually, such beings actually exist. But he actually got visited by three men in black and they told him, look, you're, you're either going to stop, you're going to stop working in this area or, you know, we won't kill you first. We'll take out your wife and your kids and your pets. We'll do all that first to make our point. I mean, th this is the kind, this is the mindset of the people that rule our world. Because these, these men in black, which many people think are just mythical, um, express the attitude and the thinking of those that are in power. They don't act independent of it. They're part of it. And so when you ask me the question, you know, do I think that they're actually acting in a subversive way to people that have alternative energy? And look, look, I, I, I'm sure you know that I was friends with Dr. Brian O'Leary, right? Uh, and, Certainly, yeah. You know, I mean, 
you know, just um, after I was kidnapped in 2009, uh, he ended up dying of a, a cancer so rare I've never heard of another case like it. Uh, either in my own work or in the extant literature, it was a form of diadental cancer. He couldn't even take anything orally. I mean, and he told me uh, just a matter of a couple months before I got kidnapped, he told me that they were trying to to assassinate him with uh, what was called a Venus shooter. That looks like a bazooka. It's effective within a hundred meters and. It induces a heart attack. It, it, reduce, it, it, it emits an electromagnetic pulse so strong that basically in the target, with, it leaves no evidence. You're able to get the person induce a heart attack, and uh, no one knows the better. Yeah, but that's no strange. I mean, in the 1970s, they went to Congress and they showed the gun, the heart attack gun. Yeah. Well, they have, they've perfected it considerably since. But my point is that um, I believe, based on my private conversations with Brian O'Leary before he died— and before my uh, illegal kidnapping in December of 2009, you know, I, I believe that, that he was basically unceremoniously taken out because he simply would not be, stop talking about the importance of alternative forms of energy. And he, it's, he, he, and this guy was not um, this guy was not like Colonel Tom Bearden, another guy who I've spent time with and actually went to his home and interviewed him and. Uh, there's a number of, of, of inter interview segments between myself and Colonel Tom Bearden. He wasn't even doing this in the applied sciences. He was talking primarily theoretically, and they still went after him. I mean, this, this, this so when you ask me the question, do I think that they're, um, you know, trying to destroy the lives of people that, that, that <laughs> you know, make advances in these areas. I'm an eyewitness to it, for God's sake. It's not, it's not something, it's not a matter of belief. It's a matter, you're talking to an eyewitness. <laughs> and for anybody who wonders, I did an interview with Dr. O'Leary back in 2009, you know, listen to it, folks, exactly what Greg is talking about. He just was passionate about finding ways, you know, the energy solution revolution. That was his book. That's exactly what he wanted. And, you know, hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to see something come out. Do you perceive that with, for example, Tesla Motors, and I know that for some reason in certain states they banned Tesla Motors from opening dealerships because they call it an unfair trade practice to have Tesla Motors compete with the big three, you know, Chrysler, Chevrolet, and, and Ford. Do you see other alternative energy sources opening up in the future. And I'm not talking about solar or wind. I'm talking about something new, you know, zero point uh, energy. I happen to know. There's a couple of people that I know. Uh, I have been told. Over unity, by, that kind of uh, stuff. By, yeah, by a couple of sources. Oh, they've got that down. They've got the whole over unity thing. They've got that down. Uh, I have been told that there are pods of people, scientists, who are working in the underground, who are of the mindset, today we work, today we explore, and tomorrow, when consciousness rises to a point where it's ready for it, then we reveal. This is the mindset. We work in the dark now, but there will come a time when we can work in the light. That's, that's the thinking of a lot of these people who, you know, who, uh, who know what it would take for us to move in a direction where we can write the ship of destruction or basically we can go into the, to revert back to my previous metaphor, we can break into the pilot's cabin, take out the kamikaze pilots and land the plane. But why do we, we have to, why do we have to get the kamikaze pilot? If with the technology that they have given us, which I, I wonder sometimes if they are unhappy about that, it allows people to wake up, to communicate across the ocean, people can listen to us right now all over the world, when in the past it could take months or years. But if somebody out there has the technology, the blueprints, and we have open source, and they can actually submit it to thousands, if not millions of people out there at the same time, how could that be stopped? Well, you're, you're presuming a certain power that doesn't exist. One of the things that, that, that occurred when I was uh, talking to Guy McPherson, he talked about – he, he wouldn't reveal his name. I, did, I didn't want him to reveal it – of a major 
um, news personality type that got in close with them and said, you know, we need to talk about this. We need to. Anyways, he said um, this news personality who basically wanted to publicize Guy McPherson's ideas. The guy said he got a phone call from him. He said, you know, the strangest thing has been happening lately. He said, you know, uh, people tell me that they have. Uh, they send me email. It's not there. It's not in spam. It's you know, ba- basically they're they're breaking in. They're going in the back door into my Windows system and they're literally mani- determining what email I'm allowed to read and what email I'm not. And for people to think that's a conspiracy theory, not long after Guy McPherson told me that the actual my interview with him was on May seventh. Um, lo and behold, we get this thing from from. Uh, WikiLeaks, where the, that says that the, the the CIA, which of course if the CIA can do it, the NSA and all the other intel, most of the other intelligence agencies in the world can probably do it. They have the ability to to go into your email uh, accounts and determine what emails that you're going to get, what you're allowed to receive, and what you're not. Well, th- don't so, take it that far. I mean, I don't mean to interrupt you. You'll, you'll finish in a moment. But Microsoft, for example, has us completely blocked. Anybody who subscribes to us will not get any information from us, newsletters, our passwords. We have to do it manually with another email. Outlook, live.com, I believe, Hotmail, Microsoft, or anything that's related to them, not only in the United States, but all over the world, they have us blacklisted. Yeah, well, you're you're making my point. This is what I'm talking about. So, you know, it's easy to say, well, we have the ability to communicate with us. We can make these things go viral. No, no, we can't. They determine what's allowed to go viral and what's not. And so with that kind of restriction on the part of people who, who are diagnosably psychopathic, this is uh, this is where we're at. The, and, uh, my book is divided. I'm, and divide into two parts. Book one, which I call the Great Winding, and book two, which I call the Great Unwinding. And unfortunately, we're still in the Great Winding. We are still in this spiral downward. Uh, and there are forces out there that have the ability to put us on the right course, uh, to get us beyond the thing where we're reliable on, on fossil fuels, to get us to the point where we're we don't have um, a proliferation of the degenerative diseases, which are contributed to by them, because all these things contribute to uh, to the, the 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 demise of the general health of the public. I was reading an article just two days ago in Bloomberg, of all places. That's that's pretty mainstream, where where Bloomberg was saying that Americans are uh, not living as long, they're not living as healthy, and they're in a disease state in between. And you know, I read this article. And there was reading between the lines almost a certain um, a certain glee, a certain like you know like like rubbing the rubbing the hands together, oh wow, this, can you believe this again, the p- people that live and love and get the thrill of knowing that they're create making making their fellow humans suffer these are the manifestations of the psychopathic mind. Coming from Bloomberg, all those stocks that are related to what you just said, pharma, medicine, and all that, mm-hmm. probably will go up with that statement. Yeah, but uh, the good news is, if there's any good news in this at all, is that they're becoming increasingly transparent. I mean, before, I mean, have you ever seen a time or a period before where people where there was as, as many people as there are now who know that the mainstream media is just wall-to-wall fake news and that you really can't trust anything they say and that the only thing that ever comes out of the mainstream media that you can trust is something that you also coincidentally saw with your own eyes or heard with your own ears that you, I mean, that that's where we're at. I mean, more people, more and more people than ever realize that the, the, uh, that the mainstream media just is the promulgator of sheer nonsense. At Don't, least let speculate about something here since you're mentioning fake news right now. I don't know if you've noticed, if you read the United States news, if you fog your mind with this kind of nonsense, but as of today and yesterday, this week per se, we are seeing that finally the left or those fake news, CNN and and mostly the left ones are finally talking about Hillary Clinton possibly being prosecuted and maybe going to prison. I was very surprised seeing that. Maybe she's becoming the sacrificial lamb because she didn't win and she's not. She's of no use to them and has become a burden at the same time. I wonder if the reason this is happening is because they haven't been able to take Trump down. 
And by okay, taking I'll, Hillary I'll you, first, my- yeah, but let me finish this. By taking Clinton, the Clintons out first, then they can say, we're going to take Trump also. So they're making it non-political. Well, that's one possibility. But I, you know, if we pan out for a moment, I see I see something broader afoot. Uh, let's say that you and I are in a mountain cabin together. Uh, you know, we're, we're on a uh, nature trip or whatever. And we get rain, we get snowed in. And uh, well, first we burn all the logs that are in the cabin. And then we look for maybe wood that can be scurried around outside the cabin. But eventually, in order to not freeze to death, you and I are probably going to break apart the furniture and throw it in the fireplace because <laughs> it's just gotten that severe. You know, I see the the whole thing with the Clintons with basically throwing Hillary to the dogs in the same vein as uh, this whole Harvey Weinstein thing. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's throwing the furniture into the fireplace to keep it warm for the rest of the <laughs> the rest of the elite. Uh, uh, I, I, I really see that there's a certain rising consciousness and there in order to, to make it look like in order to preserve what I call the benign common narrative, that is the most important function of government. They have to preserve the idea that they are what they tell the public that they are, that they stand for democracy, that they stand for all these different values that, for instance, the left is so is always expounding. And the only way they can do it now, I think they've reached the point where in order to keep the cabin warm, they're just having to tear apart the furniture and throw, throw that in the fireplace too, because they're having to make sacrifices that otherwise in healthier times, I don't think they'd ever make. Now that doesn't invalidate what you just said. Um, it may be, you know, your analysis may be right on, you know, spot on. It may be a case they're going to do this and then they're going to say, well, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Now we've taken out uh, the Clintons. Now we have a more, we have better footing in order to go after and take out Trump. Maybe that's what their plan is. But looking at it, um, stepping back and looking at it, an even bigger picture, I, I, I just, again, I, I think it's time to start breaking apart the furniture and throwing it in the fireplace. Speaking of Hillary Clinton, I didn't know that, correct me if I'm wrong, if I read this right in your book, that she signed off. On your arrest, along with a dozen other U.S. officials, was her name on the no, documentation no, you saw? Yeah, I have, I have a more personal connection to Hillary Clinton than most of your listeners do. Yeah, she was Secretary of State. Uh, something on that order of things. To actually in- initiate and actuate an extraordinary rendition required uh, her, her go-ahead. Now, I'm not saying that she gave it any thought. If you went up to Hillary Clinton right now and you said, do you know who Greg Caton is? She may quite honestly tell you, no, I don't, I don't know who that is. I can't remember it. You know, if you're secretary of state, you've got assistants who will come to you with a stack of 50 documents that you have to sign off on. So I'm not saying that this was something that was given great attention by her. I'd have no way of knowing that. But uh, my associate the late Dr. Neville Solomon, who was kidnapped on November 19th, 2008, because they thought he was me, actually saw the document and told me that Hillary Clinton's signature was on it. So, you know, that's coming from somebody who was pretty close to me. So, yeah, they, they something on that order of things. They don't do an extraordinary rendition, and the Secretary of State is completely – uh, has no knowledge of it. She's the, the Secretary of State signs off on it. You know, let me say this. In my circle of friends, I have plenty who work for defense contractors, and I also have plenty of doctors that are friends. And I've come to the conclusion that I can't, Greg, discuss all these subjects with them, especially the medical doctors. You know, the defense contractors know about it, and they even say they know that the whole quote, once weapons were manufactured to fight wars, now wars are manufactured to sell weapons. But doctors, when I discuss some of the research I found, you know, about cures and, and, and plain alternative health, they all try to ridicule me. And they say, oh, that's pseudoscience. You didn't go to school 18 years like I did, blah, blah, blah. And I, I could debate anyone about this and tell them that they, they were indoctrinated for those 18 years. And, and don't get me wrong, doctors do a good job too. But they're limited to the toolbox that they've been given by the script That script has been written by somebody who wants to keep the status quo and no cures. 
Call it medical practice because they're practicing every day. So don't get me wrong. What's your take on this? When you have social circles, I, I presume in your case, well, it's different. But in my case, so many mainstream people just do not get it. Okay, well, two things. When you, when you mentioned that, two things came to mind. First is that famous quote by George Bernard, the Irish playwright, George Bernard Shaw. Tell me how a man makes his money, and I'll tell you what he believes. Yeah. That's the first of all. Um, secondly, people have to understand medical science is not scientific. Medical science is a religion. Science, science, I call it scientism in my book, is a religion. It is not about the impartial quest for truth. The purpose and function of conventional science is to establish an elite, a privileged elite that determines what the rest of us are supposed to believe. And, you know, I understand that that's a big leap for some people. Um, and it took, it took a lifetime of study for me to reach that conclusion, although I have many friends that independent of me have come to the same conclusion. Uh, you know, well, you and I were talking not long ago about all this controversy that's surrounding us over this whole flat earth thing. And quite frankly, I don't have an opinion on it because if I don't have the time to really explore something thoroughly, I feel that you should have the right to not have an opinion about something. You don't have to have an opinion about something that you're not thoroughly educated in. So I can tell you that I don't necessarily believe these people, despite their compelling arguments that, 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 that say, you know, the earth, the earth is flat. But I'll tell you this, there's a lot of very strong evidence with whatever the earth may be, it's certainly not a round ball that's 8,000 miles in diameter and 24,000 miles in circumference. So, you know, we could get into many of these areas where we have been told this is fact, where there's certainly a lot of evidence that the things that we're taught are simply not true. And this probably exists in every major discipline, certainly in the, it's certainly in the natural and physical sciences. I mean, look, we, we, could, we could take something this simple. We could reduce it to this. The whole idea that with all the science that we have, all the knowledge that we have, that the best, that the, medica, the people who are conventional medical authorities can look us in the face, can look at, look at us with a straight face and tell us, that the best they can do with its astonishingly poor rates of results, that chemotherapy and radiation and radical surgery is the best they can come up with. When in the 1830s, you had books being written by physicians saying, don't cut into cancers. You call your create metastasis. They've known this forever. It's aphorism number 37 in the, in, in the aphorisms of Hippocrates. This, the people knew this 2,400 years ago. And yet... When someone has a tumor, they're, they're right out of the shot block. They're going to suggest surgical remover, guaranteeing it's, it's metastasis. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm saying when I say that science has nothing to do with truth. Scientism is a religion, and it has to do with money and power and influence far more than it has to do with facts. And the sooner people can come to that conclusion and realize that, the better they'll have a sense of what their world is about. We have to take a one and only break, but let me just say this, and then we'll continue the discussion. You know, I remember back in the early 90s, I, I crashed a wedding with a friend of mine when I lived in Mexico City, in Acapulco, and I met the son of a Mexican billionaire with the name of Emilio Azcarraga. He's the CEO of Televisa, which is the largest media conglomerate there. Nice guy. But then I was thinking, gosh, you know, these guys, all they do is just put out these soap operas and disconnect people from reality. And then reading your book, you you have this quote from that the, his father, Emilio Escarraga. And he says, Mexico is a country of a modest, very, that expletive here, effed class, which will never stop being effed. Television has the obligation to bring <clears throat> pardon me, to bring diversion to these people and remove them from their sad reality and difficult future. I don't think that applies only to Mexico. I think it applies to the United States. It's bread and circus. But anyways, folks, we have, we just scratched the surface. We have so much more to discuss in the second hour in the members section. Greg, how can people buy the new book and learn more about your products and services? Well, I keep it posted on my uh, bio, actually my bio page. I have a bio page 
and the name of the bio page is um, Greg Caton is my name, gregcaton.com, G-R-E-G, and then C-A-T-O-N.com. And I talk about um, the book, and people will actually be able to buy the book when it's um, – the book is finished. It's going to its, to its final cycle of, of polishing and uh, proofreading and so forth. So it will, it will be out shortly. But then there's a contact page where people can write to me directly, and I, I do – at least at this point, I'm able to answer in a very personal way anybody who writes to me directly. Hopefully when this show airs, the book will be readily available to you. Folks, don't go anywhere. Much more to discuss with Greg Caton. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our archive material, go to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for great products including pure organic sulfur, rebounders, turmeric, and more. Thank you.